You're listening to Why Try, the podcast. Tom Brady is founder of Plastic Technologies, Inc., or PTI, and he has probably touched more people's lives than any other guest on the show, having developed the plastic technology behind plastic bottles widely used in the beverage industry. Since starting over 30 years ago, his company has also branched into other areas like plastics recycling, food packaging, and packaging for healthcare products. It's easy to take this stuff for granted, but there's really actually a lot of technology and innovation behind the packaging we use every day. So it's that innovation that Tom and his company are responsible for. So all of that is cool, uh, but what this interview is also about is about how he created a company where so many of his employees embody the entrepreneurial spirit and grow in the business. The engagement he's created with employees is really unheard of. He's had almost no turnover since starting the company. Roughly half of all of his employees all throughout the company have some sort of equity ownership, and over half of his technical employees are women. So it's really a unique place, and I think you'll enjoy hearing him share how he created it. So to start off, could you just share uh, some backstory on how your company, Plastic Technologies, came to be? Kind of what led up to its creation? I mean, when I walked into the industry in 1972, there were no plastic soft drink bottles. Uh, and it happened to be that uh, Coke uh, and other uh, major suppliers at the time were trying to figure out how you get into family-sized containers. And, of course, all of the containers at that time were small metal and glass. And it turns out that you can't really effectively make large metal or glass containers. So it was that request that really opened the whole industry uh, to the the opportunity for plastic. And while there's a lot of background there, let me just skip to the fact that, you know, when we went into this business, we started with 32 and then 64-ounce bottles, and glass and metal couldn't make them. And that's really what Coke wanted. And Owens, Illinois at the time was where I was an employee. It was a packaging company, meaning they made glass and metal and plastic. Uh, but plastic was always a little bit of a stepchild because Owens, Illinois was a glass container company. And even though uh, they promoted this and allowed us to do all the development. And of course, I was involved from the very ground floor of trying to figure out what materials worked, what kind of designs worked, and all of these kind of things. Um, uh, I, I, I had a chance to, to, to sort of develop the industry along with others. Uh, and it kind of developed within a glass company. And we became successful. We actually put up four plants. Uh, and I can remember going to the board along with several other people asking for money to expand. And Owens, Illinois, kind of looked at us like, wait a minute, you know, this is getting too too successful. We don't want you to really compete with our glass business. And so we're not going to expand that business. Go ahead and make your soap bottles and other kinds of things. But we're not going to expand this uh, beverage and water and beer business. So this was back in 1985. About that time, Coke came along uh, and asked me whether or not I would help them make their own bottles because you can do that with plastic, not with glass and metal, uh, and because they were looking at ways to kind of get out from under the, the umbrella that they had with all these suppliers. So as it turns out, uh, I left Owens, Illinois, even as a vice president in 1985, to start a company to help Coca-Cola specifically and their four regional bottling cooperatives uh, enter the self-manufacturing business. And there was no conflict of interest because, yes, we were competing with glass, but as far as uh, Owens, Illinois was concerned, they weren't going to pursue the plastic option. So that's kind of where it got started. I literally walked out of the Owens, Illinois building, took an an office in downtown Toledo, looking up at the Owens, Illinois building by myself. Uh, I had worked for Owens, Illinois for 13 years, and I think I was a pretty good employee. Uh, But this was an opportunity I had small kids and a wife who was very supportive told me to go for it. I figured that uh, if it didn't work, I could always go get a real job uh, as an engineer at some point. So that's where I kind of got started. And uh, as a practical matter, it was just me in an office that, by the way, a friend gave me for free. Uh, I had no employees. Uh, I did all my uh, technical work by contracting that work with uh, uh, local and even distant kinds of suppliers. And uh, that's sort of where it all started. What interested you about that opportunity? Well, you know, I, I think as a practical matter, while I never really was looking for an entrepreneurial opportunity, 
I think it was a natural for somebody like me going, frankly, all the way back uh, to my college days. And interestingly, uh, when I went to Dartmouth College in engineering, our first engineering course uh, was one where we were given a a large problem, divided into teams, called ourselves companies, uh, acted like a company, even though we didn't know what a company was at that young age, uh, to try to figure out how to solve that problem and sell it, if you will, uh, build a business to the Board of Overseers, a paper business. And and I think, uh, you know, well, well, people like to think that you can teach people how to be entrepreneurs. My view is that the way people become entrepreneurs is they find themselves in a situation where they can learn as opposed to pick up a textbook and go to a course. And so that was an experience that, that I happened to have. And as it happens, when I came back to my uh, 15th college reunion, I bet half of us from that class had already gone out and started companies in, in one area or another. So back to your question, I think while I wasn't looking for the opportunity, I always had my eyes open. Uh, and like a lot of things that I tell uh, people that work with me now is, you know, part of the secret to life is not planning everything, but keeping your eyes open so that when opportunities come along, whether they're in this case an entrepreneurial opportunity or in the case of trying to figure out what a customer might need, you know, those things are things that you have to sort of uh, perceive. Uh, and in most cases, you have to act quickly. You know, in my case, uh, if I had... Uh, uh, taken longer than three or four months to figure out whether or not I was going to go do this, even though it was a big step, Coke would have moved on and found somebody else to go do it. So I had to make a decision, and, you know, to kind of go uh, uh, do that. And I, I didn't come from an entrepreneurial family. My father was an engineer that worked at the same company his whole life. My mom was a teacher. But I think both of them, while they didn't think of it as being entrepreneurial, always encouraged me and my sisters to kind of do what made sense. I can remember my father, by the way, bringing home things uh, and giving me things that you would probably get arrested for today so I could take them down the basement and work on them. Chemistry, mechanics, electric motors. And I figured out how to do all that stuff and make robots, you know, build, uh, you know, back alley bombs and all of those kind of things. Uh, on my own, encouraged by my parents, even though they were entrepreneurs. So I think you put all that background together, and I think, uh, in a sense, it would have just been a matter of time before an opportunity like this came along. As it happens, I was probably one of only 10 people in the world that knew what I knew at the time about how you take polyester and make it successfully into a uh, plastic bottle commercially. So I had knowledge and experience that most people didn't have. And I took advantage of it, and my wife supported me. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how your business has grown since then and kind of the, how you got into some of the different areas over time? About six months uh, after I had left Owens, Illinois, took an office, uh, one of the guys that I had hired out of the University of Toledo, who was an engineer, uh, sort of wandered over and said, what are you doing? A guy named Bob Deardorff, as it happens, uh, because Owens, Illinois wasn't pursuing this whole thing. Uh, I ended up saying, you know, listen, I've got a lot more to do here than I could ever accomplish on my own. Are you interested in coming to work for me? And oh, by the way, I have to pay you probably a lot less than you were making at Owens, Illinois. I can't give you any benefits and I can't give you any security. Uh, are you interested? <laughs> and uh, he said, yeah, I'd like to. So it was just Bob and me. And about six months later, Scott came over and asked the same question. I gave him the same story. Can't give you any benefits. Can't pay you much can't give you any security. Do you want to come to work? So he came to work. Six months later, Frank Samersky came over. Uh, and so I sort of asked the same question. And I, I think the four of us really are sort of the founders of this business. And and, and by the time I had hired uh, those three uh, individuals, you know, we were looking for new customers, not just Coke. Uh, we had a lot of credibility because we were known in the industry. Uh, and we had kind of done the whole thing from the materials to the chemistry to developing manufacturing operations. Uh, and I think we just sort of hit a rhythm and it took off. It was at a time when that was sort of where everything was going in the packaging industry. Everybody was beginning all of a sudden to convert to PET and there weren't that many resources. 
so we were able to uh, uh, develop customers like Colgate Palmolive that wanted to do self-manufacture, didn't know anything about it, uh, Coke, uh, and eventually other companies like uh, uh, Nestle, and eventually Pepsi, and, and lots of other sort of companies. So uh, I, I think it was, you know, you, you might say I was lucky in a way, and I think you can kind of say that about all entrepreneurs, but in a way, you sort of make your own luck. Uh, and in my case, uh, I I happened to be able to hire people that I had hired back on Illinois and trained with no conflict of interest, uh, and we just kind of took it to a whole new level in an industry that really wanted to to grow. And and and, and those kind of companies, I mean, the Coca Colas of the world, whether huge, they had a huge opportunity to save money by manufacturing their own containers instead of buying them from a merchant supplier. So we provided everything from manufacturing to plant support to design to prototyping and all of those things. And by the way, you know, in those early days, we didn't have much except our computers and a desk, computers such as they were, by the way. Uh, so we contracted out laboratory services. But eventually, we began to sort of put our own laboratory together. And like entrepreneurs, we, you know, squeezed our compensation down so that we could afford to you know, to buy a few things, to do the kinds of things in a laboratory that we wanted to, from testing to prototyping. But we also got a little creative, which I think entrepreneurs need to do. Uh, as a practical matter, even though I had signed uh, long-term three-year contracts with all four of the major then regional cooperative, bottling cooperatives at Coke, after about a year, two of them decided they didn't want to do this anymore. And that was sort of one of those times when you know, I could have bought out the contracts and we probably four of us could have walked away and been, you know, pretty happy. Uh, but instead of that, we offered the money that we would have gotten from those buyouts to the remaining two co-ops uh, in exchange for them extending the contract to five years, which really gave us the time frame and the platform to develop uh, a longer term business with multiple customers and so forth. So along the way, you run into totally unexpected things. And part of what an entrepreneur needs to do is figure out what you're going to do when you hit a barrier that you hadn't seen before. That was one of ours, but we it turned out to be an opportunity for us. What are some of the other business segments that you guys have gotten into over the last uh, like 30 plus years? We're, we're in the uh, plastics PET recycling business, which is an extension in a way uh, of the package development business, but it is a very different business and it's manufacturing rather than development and service. We're also in the specialty package uh, manufacturing business, which again is an extension, uh, but is a manufacturing business. PTI, the, the parent company, if you will, uh, was really a technology and development business, but I would say that part of what we were able to do was while I started that company, I hired guys that them, themselves were, I guess you would call them entrepreneurs, meaning that they were looking for opportunities on how to uh, grow PTI as, as, as an enterprise. And, and kind of an interesting story, and I could tell you this about a lot of uh, our business, but if you look at our recycling business, which is Phoenix Technologies International, uh, it came about because Bob Deirdre, one of my first employees who happened to be uh, working uh, on behalf of Colgate to do package development in PT, was in an office one day somewhere in New York, and Colgate asked them at the time about how to use recycled PT, which, by the way, was almost free, and nobody used it much for packaging. But instead of Bob saying, you know, pay us, you know, $100,000 and we'll show you how to do that and figure it out for you. He moved that conversation into something where Colgate said, would you do it for us? And so the opportunity came for us to put together a contract proposal, even though we had never been in the manufacturing business for, for Colgate, to make recycled PET for him. But we said to Colgate in the contract, if we're not able to do it or you don't like what we're doing after three years, you can have the business buy it for X amount. And then, of course, we worked hard to make sure they didn't want to do it. And so after that, it became a major business. And Phoenix today now, uh, by the way, is, uh, uh, I think, maybe the largest merchant supplier of food-grade recycled PET in the country. 
and I could say that about some of our other businesses. We started PTI Europe, and Frank, who was over in Europe uh, doing contract work for a customer, uh, suddenly discovered that there was an opportunity over there uh, for us to actually put an operation in, and he negotiated that with several customers, uh, and it led to that. But again, I was not there and had Frank and Bob and Case of Phoenix uh, not been there, we probably wouldn't have done those things. And part of our model, by the way, is not to just grow PTI into a massive company, uh, but rather to start separate enterprises, Phoenix, uh, Preform Technologies, which is our specialty manufacturing company, uh, PTI Europe, uh, and now we are starting a, a, a fifth one uh, called uh, Guardian uh, Medical. These are all separate enterprises that are very interrelated with PET. There's cross-ownership, uh, but it also uh, gave me an opportunity to tell the Franks and the Bobs and the Scots of the world, uh, you know, go make this happen. So even though they were within our company enterprise, they actually started separate enterprises. I offered them ownership in those enterprises. Uh, PTI took ownership in those enterprises. So each one of those things, I think, got started because we treated them all as separate opportunities with uh, an incentive uh, for people to do more than just come to work today and say, you know, I helped you start a company. And so that's been our model. And it also allowed us, by the way, to do more than just uh, professional services. And of course, the tax structure for a professional service company and the way you compensate and, and provide benefits are different than a manufacturing company. So by keeping those companies separate, but with uh, cross-ownership, we were able to uh, do something that most companies can't do. For example, how many recycling companies have access you know, to one of the uh, high-quality technical development companies in the world, proprietary access, who, by the way, developed the technology that is now being was patented and is now being used in, in Phoenix Technologies? And what technical development companies have manufacturing companies that they can actually send their uh, employees to, to be trained and to learn uh, what the customers are doing. So we've kind of had an opportunity to, to do a number of things. The medical uh, device company, a medical packaging device company we call Guardian, is an even further reach outside of what we do. But, I mean, we aren't experts in the medical field and certainly don't know much about medical devices. But, as it happens, I met a former spinal surgeon who had developed some uh, devices uh, to use on back surgery, and he was looking for somebody to supply the packaging. And, oh, by the way, he wanted packaging that was very, very specialized and, uh, and new to the field. But he didn't know anything about plastics or manufacturing. So we've created a 50-50 joint venture company to manufacture the products for uh, the medical device company, named Spinal Balance, by the way. And PTI now is putting that manufacturing company adjacent to one of our other uh, manufacturing companies. So the, the, what we've done and what I've been maybe lucky to have is people that uh, uh, continue to look around the corners at what the uh, next opportunity is. And of course, in, in, in our business, you know, we've designed a lot of Coke and Pepsi and Colgate and Nestle bottles, and we'll continue to do that. But there's more people that do that today than used to. And oh, by the way, they don't need as many developments as they did before, and they're more sophisticated than they were. So we have to move on to some of the other gaps. Well, you know, in this country, uh, healthcare is obviously one of the, you know, growing uh, fields. So we didn't really have a good way to get into that because we're not doctors or medical experts. But this is a way. And so we'll keep looking for the next opportunity beyond medical uh, as well. How do you find that opportunities most often come to you? You know, I, 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 I mean, we're, we're, I guess at this stage, we've got enough of a, uh, uh, a reputation and brand in the industry that we've actually had uh, customers and companies who know about us come to us with ideas. And I can probably give you a couple examples of that. But by and large, it goes back to what I said before, and that is that... Uh, you know, we have a, a senior management team that just culturally is always looking for what's next. And so, 
even though a customer might know not know what's next, uh, as the you know as perhaps was the case in the recycling uh, example, you know our people come back and and they happen to be in an environment where you can try things, you know, and we we've tried a lot of things. By the way, that have failed. We tried to develop a uh, company that uh, was going to make uh, 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 logo bars. I mean, when I say bars, logo plastic stands that people could buy and use at uh, tailgate parties because a company came and asked us to do that. And we spent a ton of money on that. Eventually, we decided that it wasn't going to work, so we kind of abandoned that. We also, by the way, somebody came to us and told us there was a huge opportunity to (coughs) recycle uh, uh, the insulation off of electrical wire when companies recovered the copper from the wire. And we spent a ton of money on that and tried it and actually started making products, but eventually discovered that we really couldn't match the price of uh, uh, Virgin PVC, so we abandoned it. So we've tried a number of things that haven't uh, worked, but some of them have really worked. And what that does is it creates a culture where it's okay to fail. (laughs) Uh, You know, so, so people are not afraid to try things in our company. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's actually something I wanted to ask you about. Because you talked a lot about the way you've set the company up structurally to encourage people to have that sense of ownership and uh, that kind of entrepreneurial uh, attitude, like an owner attitude about what they're doing. Culturally, is there anything that you found works particularly well? Um, it sounds like maybe being willing to fail your, make mistakes and fail yourself is, is one of those things as a leader. But uh, how else do you encourage uh, that, that culture of uh, innovation where people are comfortable uh, taking chances? Well, you know, I, I would say probably the the primary attribute, if you will, that our company has is that we've created a an ownership model that encourages everybody to believe that this, this is as much theirs as it is mine. Uh, and, you know, I remember I put a very sophisticated advisory board together early in the game with bankers and lawyers and people that wanted to help help make me successful. And I remember uh, when I came to them one day and suggested that I was thinking about offering some stock options to several of my key people that I thought not just had done a good job, but could help us grow the company and get to the next level. And I remember them telling me, uh, you know, pay them a lot, but whatever you do, don't give away stock. It'll just create issues. And, you know, they're unsophisticated investors and on and on and on. And I thought about all that advice from these very smart business guys. Uh, and I went and offered stock options anyway. <laughs> and we've kind of continued on that model. And, and you know, everybody doesn't get ownership at PTI, but I would say about half the employees by now have ownership. My ownership, by the way, is down to 25%. And, you know, most of these folks uh, have taken on, you know, the uh, objective of making PTI successful because this is much as much of their company as it is mine. This isn't like working for IBM and getting fewer stock shares once in a while. This is about really owning a piece of the rock. Uh, and, and by the way, when I uh, you know first began doing this, of course, I and my wife, Betsy, uh, kind of made the judgments about who was going to get a stock option. Uh, but today, we've got an uh, even more interesting and sophisticated model, and that is where the senior... Uh, management staff uh, has a say in who else gets stock. And so anybody uh, in a company can propose uh, and make a case for an employee, but it's not just me and it's not just the board. It is, uh, you know, our senior people who are engaged themselves that decide whether they want somebody else on, on board. And again, I would emphasize the fact that this isn't about, you know, you did a good job, although people should have done a good job. And this isn't about a reward, per se, although it is in a way. It really is about identifying people who want to carry the mantle, you know, who want to build a legacy, who want to grow the company and, and have the capacity to do that. And I would also say, by the way, that stock options are not based on tenure. They're not based on rank. They're not based on... Uh, uh, those kinds of things. And, and we have, out of our half employees who, who own stock, I mean, you can find people all the way up and down the scale, from executive management 
uh, to people that are working in the laboratories because they've demonstrated those characteristics. And I think, you know, when you do that on a consistent basis, uh, you begin to build a culture, which is, you know, it doesn't happen overnight, but you begin to build a culture where uh, they not only trust management and the board, but they uh, begin to realize that everybody's equally important uh, in their own way in a company like PPI. I, I might, just as an aside, I might also say that one of the things that we've been able to do, and I give my wife Betsy probably most credit for this, is that as opposed to just putting a standard rule book together for employees, we've created our uh, policies, if you will, and our uh, way of dealing with people and situations uh, uh, according to what makes sense. I can remember when our first female engineer uh, got pregnant. Instead of giving her a rule book that said, you know, you get three weeks off, take it or leave it, we worked out a deal where over a period of a year and a half, she could do what needed to be done at home and here. And, and after she got all done, she stayed. She Today, she's a vice president, by the way, uh, and our senior technical officer. And I could say that, you know, probably half of our technical employees, by the way, are female. And most of them have family. And none of them have left. Why is that? Well, it's because, you know, we've been able to create an environment where they have a say in what uh, happens. And by the way, we're flexible. We, yeah, we got a rule book, but our rule book is sort of, you know, changes according to what makes sense. So all of that helps build the culture where people want to make the place successful. And I, I could tell you a number of stories where customers have said and or even written letters back to us, you know, saying, you know, you have such an amazing place, but it's not about the place. <laughs> what they're talking about is the people, because all of that kind of a culture also causes the uh, employee owners uh, to do an even better job for customers, because that's where it all starts. So I don't know how you get there. Um, I, I guess you know, one of the things that I say uh, when I'm giving a, a speech sometime, when somebody says, well, you know, talk to me about leadership, you know, how have you been so successful? And and I always go back to a little statement that, that frankly, I learned from my first boss, uh, and I practice it religiously, and that is leadership is about making other people successful. I mean, if you think about, you know, your own career over the years, I mean, how many people have you worked with and for where it was all about them making themselves successful at other people's expense. Maybe not openly, maybe not in a you know antagonistic way, but their focus was that. And I sort of start with a premise that if I'm going to be successful, it's going to be because I make other people successful. And my successful uh, quote, whether it be financial or social or uh, any other way, uh, it becomes a byproduct of that. And so I've preached that. And frankly, I think people uh, at PTI buy into it because it works. Yeah, that's uh, some, that's actually a trend I've noticed in talking to successful entrepreneurs and business owners that there's such a focus on making sure everyone on their team's needs are being met. And it's good. I mean, it's I don't know like why anyone would do it otherwise because it gives such uh, good results. Well, let, let, let me give you a kind uh, of okay. a uh, a side tour here. I don't, I don't know whether you know it, but uh, back in 2008, when I was a trustee at the University of Toledo, the president approached me and asked me whether I had any interest in becoming the interim dean of education, which is teacher training. And uh, I've always had a passion for education, but I certainly was not a teacher and I was not uh, an educator. And in fact, when I walked into the college, uh, the faculty, 100% of the faculty did not want me there. Uh, and because I wasn't one of them. And, and and you know, making a long story short, when I left three years later, the, the situation was totally different. Uh, and I was not only accepted, I was embraced. But it wasn't because I was the best dean of education that walked in there. It was because I did exactly what I just described we do at PTI. And that is figure out how to make other people successful so that it becomes more about, you know, them and less about you and the incentive uh, that they are motivated by become, in a sense, more about the enterprise and less about them personally. And it works. And I found that in an academic world, uh, which is all about me. 
so uh, I, I've convinced myself, you know, that is a management philosophy uh, and style that it works universally. Yeah, that makes uh, a lot of sense. I mean, it's, it's people. People. So I'm curious uh, what your thoughts are, because it seems like uh, you have something that's pretty unique among, um, why don't, why do you think that uh, it's not more common? Like, why haven't more people figured out, um, you know, ways of structuring these things, like this approach to leadership? It seems like there's a lot of, uh, a lot of larger organizations struggle with, at least like the innovation side of it. What do you think holds organizations back from embracing this kind of approach? One, one uh, element, I think, is size. As I indicated, you know, we have uh, been diligent about continuing to break our entire enterprise into smaller separate companies where the nature of that is that not only the people that are leading those enterprises but those that work in those enterprises feel closer you know to the action they're closer to the business they're closer to the customers they're closer and 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 by the way they they can more directly share in the success whether that be monetary or otherwise, and the challenges of those businesses. And, you know, I, uh, you know, we've kind of built our business uh, over the early years, especially in, in doing, uh, providing services to these mammoth companies, these big Fortune 100 and 500 companies, and which is nice deal in a way. But if you think about a lot of the people that work for those companies, it's a little bit like, uh, uh, you know, uh, the NFL, you know, if I can get a better coaching job for a little more money somewhere else, I'm probably going to go do it. You know, my my alliance uh, is really with myself more than it is with my team or the enterprise. And and I so I think size, while it's not a magic thing, has something to do with it. Uh, again, you know, my uh, I have an analogy in education. I'm chairing the governance board for a very uh, unique high school here called Early College High School, where kids get two years of college while they're in high school, by the way. And these are uh, mostly urban inner city kids that, uh, you know, half of them are on free or reduced lunch. And this has been a very successful high school. And we're trying to figure out how do you scale this? How do you leverage this really good deal? But one of the cautions that we keep telling ourselves is don't just make this school big, hoping that you'll be able to develop the same culture because you run into the same thing that a big high school runs into. You lead a very innovation-driven company, and I feel like uh, the industries have changed a lot uh, since the company was created. So my question would be, like, what, what's been helpful for you in like surviving and thriving during periods of change? It, it really does boil down to trying to figure out where the gaps are. You know, there was a gap when I started, Nobody knew how to make PET bottles, and there was this huge opportunity. Uh, that gap is, has narrowed. So where are the next gaps? And, you know, uh, one of the gaps is recycling. We only recycle 30% of the material in this country. What about the other 70%? Can we figure that out? Can we figure out how to recycle medical plastics? If you go to the back door of a hospital on a, on a loading dock someday and see that the plastics that go out of a hospital, either to an incinerator or to a landfill, uh, it'll knock your socks off. So you know that those are opportunities. And, you know, for us, question, without dropping what we're doing, because that pays the bills, question is, how do you devote enough energy to uh, uh, figuring out where some of those opportunities are and making some connections? So, again, I I, I don't, uh, in some ways, we've been lucky. Uh, I, I would also say, I mean, going back to your original question, companies have come and approached us. Uh, for example, uh, there's a local company here that licensed a what they call an infusion technology from uh, Bayer Chemical, B-A-Y-E-R, uh, in Europe. And what this is is it's a way of actually infusing small molecules into a plastic to get property changes. And they approached us because they were working on things like wire, cable insulation, and automotive and so forth. And he knew we were in packaging, wondered if there were any opportunities. And long story short, we're looking at a couple of things. We're looking at uh, how do you infuse colorants into the surface instead of coloring the entire thing through the thickness. And if you only do the first uh, few microns, uh, can you get it back out during a recycling process? 
And could you therefore have a colored bottle that's recyclable as opposed to one that's not? And the reason that we're working on that now in a joint partnership is because that company recognized not just me, but knew kind of what our company did and kind of approached us. So we've had several of those kinds of opportunities as well. So like when you're working as like a technology and development company, uh, you know, basically creating these technologies for other people, how do you get paid? <laughs> well, several ways, but uh, I mean, I, I would say the bulk of our work is uh, has been in the past what you would call time and materials. In other words, uh, a Colgate comes says, I want a new palm olive detergent bottle. Will you guys design it for us? And oh, by the way, we want to make it. Will you figure out what the designs are? What are the molds supposed to look like? Uh, and then will you come out and help us start it up? And oh, by the way, uh, you know, maybe stay on top of that if we're having quality problems. And so you can do those kinds of things by just t- charging per hour, you know, for your experience and your time. And I would say a lot of what companies like we do is we get paid like that. However, you know, the, the, the way to really leverage your technology is uh, and your expertise is to find ways to get paid twice for doing something once, either with a license and or a, uh, you know, use fee. Now, if a customer comes in and pays us to do something and we just sort of roll over and say, yeah, we'll do it here. You can have it, even though it's really uh, something valuable, which we do. Sometimes, maybe more than we should, but we occasionally uh, have an opportunity to negotiate with the customer and say, you know, this is really uh, uh, something that we might be able to, between us, invent something. Uh, can we sign a contract that says that we both share in the uh, intellectual property and, oh, by the way, we can sell it to third parties and both uh, benefit from it? And we've done that uh, a lot. And in fact, uh, I would use our recycling technology as an example where really what happened there was Coke came and asked us, this has been years ago, to study every food grade recycling technology there was in the world so we could tell them which one to use and we'll pay you whatever, a million dollars to do that. Uh, So it was a project with a beginning and an end. And I remember saying, because I was the one that was negotiating the contract at the time to Coke, well, we'll do that, but we have another idea uh, that's none of these others, and it's never been tried. We don't know whether it'll work, but we think it's pretty cool. And, of course, the answer was, well, will you throw that into the project? And my answer was, no, won't do that, but we'll put it in the project and have you pay to develop it. And if it, by the way, is anything any good, we still own it, and you can use it with these kinds of rights, and you and we can exploit it in other ways in the industry. Are you willing to do that? And, of course, their initial answer was no, but they thought about it pretty soon. We had a contract that said, oh, let's put that 10th idea in there and see what happens. Well, as it turns out, we developed it into the way to do uh, food-grade recycling, which we still do now. Uh, Here we are 15 years later uh, in our recycling business. But we own that technology and are able to go license it without uh, compromising Coke's ability to use that. So part of it is just having the... Uh, will, if you will, and the capacity to sell value to a customer as opposed to just ours. And, uh, of course, you know, part of the way you do that is you've got to get higher up the food chain, right? You can't sell that to a purchasing agent because all they are interested in is, you know, how low is the cost? That's what I get paid for as the purchasing agent. But the vice president who recognizes that uh, having a bottle that's three grams lighter using a new technology and design will save them $50 million a year has a whole different way of assessing that. So again, we probably don't do that, you know, as well as we ought to all the time, but that's always the way that uh, we teach our engineers and our project development people to think. How do you get value? And if you think about it, in today's world, when I started this business, you know, we designed a bottle by getting out a drawing board and a pencil and drawing the thing and then making a prototype and, you know, trying it again and again and again and seeing what happens. Uh, And so there were a lot of hours in there. So if you charge $100 an hour, that project's pretty expensive. But you come and ask us that thing today and we put it on a computer and do it in an hour and a half. (laughs) And by the way, 
we can simulate all this. We can simulate not just the design. We can simulate how you manufacture the bottle. And then we can simulate how it's going to perform, how much carbon dioxide is going to go through the walls, what's the drop impact height, all of those things. But we can do it instantly almost on a computer. So if you're selling an hour and a half's time, you're not going to get the value out of that. So you have to begin to change the model uh, of how you charge for your services. Uh, And the old model, by almost everybody's standards, was what I referred to as time and materials. It doesn't work anymore in today's world of technology. So you've got to get more creative, clever, uh, and smart about how you sell your service. Do you feel a sense of purpose in your work? And like, I, I think you do, but where does that come from? I guess I would start by saying that, you know, well, all of us enter the work world for the purpose of making sure that we got enough to live on and take care of our families. I like to think, and I, I guess I believe, that that isn't what drives me every day. I, I think what really drives me and therefore sort of rubs off on driving our company is how do you really provide value to a customer or to a consumer? And, you know, when we uh, entered the recycling business as an example, I, I think, you know, it, we entered it at a time when there wasn't much recycling happening. But there was a lot of restlessness in the world about, you know, in a throwaway economy, we've got all this plastic running around, we're not sure what to do with it. And, and part of what motivated us to not just, you know, invent something and give it to, uh, to Colgate in this case uh, was, was that, that we, we really seriously thought that we could make a dent, uh, you know, on that, you know, bigger question. So there are those kinds of things that I think, uh, you know, from a social standpoint, you know, and, you know, we think packaging is a pretty mundane thing. But you know what? I mean, if you think about all of the the value of packaging uh, to our food supply, to our medical uh, field, to the way we live our lives, yeah, we get paid for it. But frankly, if we didn't continue to try to figure out how to make things safe and how to aseptically filth things and how to sterilize uh, things and how to create, you know, materials that would be multiple in layers so that they would permeate some things and not others. We couldn't have all that. And uh, so there is part of that in our mind. You know, the other half of it is making a customer successful. And, And I guess in a way that gets down to maybe being a little more uh, financially motivated. But as I said, you know, when you're selling something to uh, a purchasing agent at a company, all that guy knows is that he's got to get this done and he wants to get it as low a cost as possible. You know, and I get that, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't feel good. But uh, I can remember selling uh, lightweighting programs to Coca-Cola. After we, we first started this business, we were making two-liter bottles at 67 grams of PT. That number doesn't mean anything to you, but they're 43 grams today and actually work better than the 67-gram bottles. But every gram that Coca-Cola took out of that bottle, you know, was millions and millions of dollars on their bottom line. So uh, I was motivated by convincing them that if they paid us a million, they could save 10 uh, in that case. And I guess it was uh, more financial than otherwise. But there's another element to that, and that is, you know, every gram you take out, there's that much that much less to recycle. So I think those the combination of those things is sort of what motivates me uh, in business. And I would say that maybe the third thing is that, I, mean, I, I don't know, maybe I could call it social responsibility. I mean, if you think about it, PTI and the PTI uh, companies today has hired hundreds of people. And so we we have, we're, we're an important part of a hundreds of family, <laughs> literally. They're, uh, they're living, their ability to educate their kids and so forth. And, you know, I, I remember talking to one of my early mentors and when I started hiring people and he said to me, because he had been frustrated with his company and a lot of his employees, he said, what are you hiring all these people for Brady said they're just a pain in the ass <laughs> and I remember I was on my way to lunch with him in the car and I never thought about it before till he asked me that and, and I I remember saying to him 
Roger, I said, number one, I just want to prove that I can do it. And number two, I'd like to look back someday and have people say, you know what? This was really good for me and my family. So, you know, those are maybe simple things, but uh, yeah, those kind of what motivates me. There always has to be some financial sense. Uh, I mean, this is a, a business world, and uh, but it isn't why you go to work every day, I think. I mean, I could probably buy a bunch of lottery tickets and win once in a while and be okay, but that wouldn't be very satisfying. <laughs> right, yeah, like uh, live off of a trust fund or something, like just... I there are people who are like born into that situation, but it seems like a lot of times they uh, wind up being kind of unhappy. I, I I think you're absolutely right. Everybody needs, and purpose is probably a word that's overused, but uh, you need to feel like you're contributing <laughs> to society. I mean, that's what a human is, right? I mean, that's why we're not animals. <laughs> yeah, no, we're wired. We're social. That's like their defining traits that we're, we need that community. Yeah. What advice would you have for someone looking at starting their own business? Maybe let me give you a, a 30,000 foot initial answer to that. And I think what, one of the things that, that really makes this country special is that we really have an, a, a society, an economy, and a, uh, and a social structure that encourages people to start businesses and to do commerce. And if we lose that, I think we are headed down a very, very uh, steep slope. It, getting down to the, you know, 1,000 foot level, I think, uh, I mean, everybody's not an entrepreneur, but you, you, somebody, A, needs to be a risk taker and actually enjoy that. Uh, not that it doesn't have its challenges. Uh, and, and entrepreneurs need to have an unusual level of energy. I mean, when I started this company, I had three kids between six and 13. Uh, uh, and I, I I will say I did not compromise my family life. I probably didn't sleep much. In fact, I was coaching seven days a week during the summers. Uh, but I had a lot of energy and I needed a lot of energy because when you're trying to start up a company, by and large, it's something that, uh, you know, hadn't been done in exactly the same way. And so you need to, to be able to spend almost 24-7, you know, uh, meeting, you know, the hurdles. Um, I, I guess, uh, you know, another thing that, uh, you know, you need to, to think about if you're really going to jump out and, and do it on your own is that uh, you really are alone. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, in, 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 you're working for a company, you can almost always say it's somebody else's responsibility. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit like in my mind, uh, I remember I, I told my kids as they got older and began to have their own children, I said, you can read every book in the world on child care. But you know what? You're going to write your own book. <laughs> and in a way, that's kind of like what it is for entrepreneurs. You're going to write your own book. You can take all the advice you want. You can read all you want. You can think you got it all figured out, but you're going to write a book uh, along the way. And I guess the other thing that I would tell entrepreneurs, find something that you really are passionate about. I mean, I, I know some people that have said, you know, I'm tired of working for a company. I want to go do my own thing. And, you know, they buy a franchise, which is not a bad thing to do. But if it's not something, if it's just something that you're doing, it's not something that you get up every day and you're really excited about figuring out how to, A, make it successful and make your customers successful and, figure out where the world's going. And I, I think a lot of that stuff <clears throat> doesn't work and wears out. So I guess those are sort of the things. You need energy, you need passion, uh, and you need something that, uh, you know, that you really like to do. On the energy note, and maybe it ties into passion too, what are some ways of maximizing your energy? Do you feel like, is that a, um, a flexible thing, the amount of energy you have? Or is it kind of something you're born with? <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a darn good question. I, I mean, I I think in in some ways you're you're kind of born with it, but but on the other hand, you know, most of us are born with pretty much the same things, and so I think a lot of it has to do with the environment you're in. I and I I was lucky enough to always uh, be motivated by my uh, parents to be thoroughly engaged in lots of different things. 
And, uh, and, and I think uh, that kind of helped form me. And I, I remember, for example, athletics. I was always in athletics. And I remember when I was captain of the football team as a senior and I was all league and all big deal and all of that. And I can remember the coach one time when I was slacking off, took me out, put me on a bench for about a quarter. And, of course, I was devastated. After he let me sit there for about a quarter, he came up to me and he said to me, he said, uh, you know, Brady, he said, uh, the time you have to worry is when I don't care whether you're any, whether you're doing a good job or not. Now get back in there. <laughs> and that was a uh, maybe a time in my life when, you know, I was associated with a mentor um, who, who really helped me understand you know, what life was all about. And each one of those experiences, that was just one, sort of combined to create uh, who you are. Of course, they go all the way back to when you're, you know, one, two, and three years old. But I, I, I think also people that aren't one-dimensional are more likely, you know, to have the energy and passion uh, about things because they see other, other opportunities. You know, one of the things I say to uh, people today in, in some of my public speeches, you know, the way things developed early on was they were pretty much monolithic. In other words, you know, you could kind of do everything in your, you know, your own space and your own industry, and there was a lot to do. But today, the big opportunities, I think, are where are at the interface of where different industries and different technologies and different philosophies meet. Uh, and you can't get there unless you're in an environment where you're forced to be exposed to different things. I could give you a, a good example here. I, for years, I've known one of the chem photochemistry professors down at Bowling Green State University. And, and for years, he kept saying, come on down, Tom, let me show you what you're doing. And I kept saying, eh, you know, Doug, I, I don't know anything about photochemistry. I'm not interested in it, you know. So one day, he prevailed upon me, and I went down. And when I was walking through his lab, looking at photochemistry, which is the science of making colors come and go, I started saying, hmm, I wonder if you could do this in a PT bottle so that you could make colored bottles and then make them go away by shining an infrared you know, beam on them and everything. My point here is, had I not walked through this guy's lab that I had no interest in, I never would have you know, put uh, those situations together to come up with something that works and so and and when you do that you get a kick out of it personally i don't think there's anybody in the world that doesn't have kind of a neat idea that doesn't get some kind of a kick out of it and the more neat ideas you have the more kicks you get and i guess it's probably a little bit like e eating food you like right <laughs> eat more of it because you like it and it feels good tastes good <laughs> so I guess. yeah it kind of builds on itself over yeah. time yeah. Okay. That's that's encouraging. Imagine if you can go back and give yourself an extra hour a day. How would you spend that past hour? <laughs> well, this is probably this is probably an answer you won't get from anybody else you interview. I'd play the piano. <laughs> I, All right. Uh, <laughs> well, Why is that? I'm uh, I've got a lot of interests and uh, and and one of my uh, interests. I, of course, I didn't like piano early on when my mom made me take lessons, uh, but I've played it uh, over the years, and I now sort of play cocktail music for people when they want to play. And I've never been able to, because I've had so many other things to do, I've never been able to focus the time on the piano to do the kinds of things that I hear other more uh, experienced and professional people do. Um, so that's where I would spend my time. And if you ask me where I'd spend another hour, if I had it, I'd probably spend it in my shop, either uh, building uh, wood projects or uh, restoring cars, which is another hobby that I have. I've always done some of this, and I do believe that, that having, no matter how busy you are, even for people that are starting businesses and so forth, you have got to have a variety in your life that gives you, allows you to re-energize yourself, if you will, uh, for the work that you do uh, 12 hours a day. And uh, so that's where I would spend my time. And if I had a third hour, I'd probably spend it with my grandkids. <laughs> nice. So how long have you been a grandparent? 17 years. I got 11 and a half grandkids. 
one is 17 going to college next year. And we've got them all the way down to one year old and one on the way. <laughs> yeah, that's good. It's a nice yeah. big family. Are you, are you a big reader? Yeah, like so I, books? I I read. Uh, and again, it's one of those things where I have to kind of cram it in. I'm not one of those people who goes to bed every night and reads for an hour. What I am is a person that uh, gets a recommended book, and then I read it intensively until I get it done. I'm a fast reader, uh, and I'm one of those people that always reads when I'm able to traveling. Like if we go on vacation or whatever else, I always put a couple of books, uh, although now I use Kindle uh, sometimes, uh, and, and read. And, uh, and I've, I've liked to read, uh, you know, I, I probably read more uh, less fiction and more uh, inspirational kinds of things. And one of my actual favorite authors is a guy named Clayton Christensen, who's actually a Harvard professor. But his whole uh, career has been built around uh, teaching the idea that disrupting uh, big systems is how systems change. And uh, he's written books like uh, The Innovator's Dilemma, and The Innovator's Solution, uh, oh, this yeah, is him. And, okay. And, and one of uh, his more recent books, which I read when I was dean of education, was Disrupting Class, because it was about how we need to disrupt the current educational approach in order to really make a change. You can't go in there. It's such a big system that you, it's hard to tweak it and get it to change uh, significantly. And he would say, for example, that charter schools are a disruptive influence on the traditional public uh, school system. Uh, he would also say that, you know, when personal computers came along and all there were were uh, uh, mainframe computers, uh, nobody was scared of personal computers that couldn't do much. They didn't really have a place. So what happened was, instead of the personal computer coming in and trying to do the job of a mainframe, it went where there was no computing power. And it gradually built a capacity and reputation and brand that everybody said, oh, that seems to be successful. That's part of what we need to do with education is, you know, build a pilot of other ways of approaching things and demonstrate they're successful. So I've read those kind of things. And I always like to read, you know, things like uh, the singularity is near, <laughs> for example, where, you know, it's about what's going to happen in 25 years. The singularity, by the way, is defined uh, as the point where machines begin to have more intellectual capacity than human. What happens when we get to that uh, that point? And, you know, I tend to read uh, by this guy that Ford just wrote a book, a guy named Ford, I think his name was Ford, uh, who wrote a book uh, about, uh, I can't remember, it was Robots, uh, Workforce and Robots. And, you know, it's all about where's the world going? Because, you know, there's predictions that half the people on this planet will not have a job in 20 years when robots take over everything. So I tend to read that kind of stuff and keep reflecting on where it's going. I just read a book, can't remember the name, about uh, the water problem in this world. And here in this region, for example, we've got huge uh, algae problems on our river and lake. You may have read about Lake Erie. How do you deal with that? Well, you know, I think rather than just lamenting it, you got to figure out ways to, to manage those problems other than just saying, oh, you know, hope no more manure goes in the river. That probably isn't going to happen. So how do you deal with it? By the way, there are a bunch of guys here over at the University of Toledo that are, are figuring out ways to plant lotus along the river, which will absorb phosphorus. And then you harvest the lotus. You harvest oh. the lotus. And by the way, you make it into medicine and food instead of trying to tell people not to have cows. <laughs> Yeah, well, I was going to say, like, like, I mean, you either need a better cow or you need, like, a better, <laughs> yeah. better system somehow. But I, yeah. I tend to, uh, to find myself, you know, in, always intrigued by what are the next big things? And education is one of my big deals now, you know, uh, since I'm not spending so much time designing plastic bottles. And if I had to pick the one thing in this world that we ought to be doing, to solve all our, our economic development, social, and environmental problems, I'd pick education. And, uh, you know, when 80% of the urban kids that start kindergarten aren't prepared, they have a low, low chance of ever graduating. And we 
That happens again and again and again in all our urban districts across this country. And yet we say we can't afford to do universal pre-kindergarten, and we can't afford to do these things. But that's where we need to spend our time. So, frankly, that's what I'm doing these days. I'm spending time. Uh, nobody can fire me or pay me any less anymore, so I'm spending all my time <laughs> trying to uh, 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 transform the educational system. <laughs> I, that's why I read Clayton Christensen, so I can figure out ways to do it. <laughs> yeah, right on. Um, yeah, and good luck with yeah, <laughs> I hope I hope it's you're so successful. Yeah. Uh, th- thanks so much for taking the time. I, I I feel like I learned a lot. I I had a lot of fun talking to you. I hope you got something of value out of it as well. Well, I hope uh, I, I hope your enterprise. Uh, uh, forget my my one little interview, but I hope your approach to creating a business here is successful, and maybe we'll cross paths someday. If you like this episode and want to hear more like it, make sure you've clicked subscribe in your podcast app. Also, if you can share this episode with at least one friend, that would really help me out and I'd appreciate it a lot. I'm always trying to grow the impact this podcast can have, both in terms of the number of people and the value that it creates for each person. You can hear more episodes like this one at nicholaspeel.com, and podcasts aren't the only thing you'll find there. You'll also get recipes for delicious and mostly nutritious food, book recommendations of guests, and a little bit of writing about mindset and entrepreneurship. Lastly, music for this podcast is by Cambrian Explosion who have signed up for the mission to settle Mars. Someday, probably within my lifetime, I'm optimistic, people throughout the solar system will be listening to their music. You can listen to Cambrian Explosion today on iTunes, Spotify, and cepdx.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening.